All right, so you have the handout. There's some review uh, material here, and I'm going to get a running start. Uh, so some of it will be uh, by way of review. We began last week by talking about how there is a pattern of, of emperors and kings that are ruling mighty empires and kingdoms to put their glories on display. They love to show the effects of their military conquests and of the grandeur of their kingdoms. And how Caesar Augustus said, I found Rome a city of bricks and left it a city of marble. And people still come from all over the world to see some of the artifacts of Caesar Augustus's reign. Um, and we see this with many kings. We see it biblically how the queen of Sheba came from, Jesus said, the ends of the earth. Not only to listen to Solomon's wisdom, but to see just the orderliness and the beauty of his kingdom centered there in Jerusalem. Uh, and it says in the account, when she saw it, there was no breath left in her. It was just so overwhelming what, you know, what Solomon had done and how God had blessed. Remember how it says in one of the accounts that Solomon made uh, silver as plentiful as stones in Jerusalem. Like silver was of very little value in his days. Just an incredibly glorious, wealthy reign. But then remember how Jesus said, she came from the ends of the earth to listen to, Sol listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. So you have to imagine as we visit and then actually live in the new Jerusalem, uh, you, know, you could imagine there'll be no breath left in us. It will be overwhelming and, this, and the glory and splendor of Jesus' reign infinitely greater than that of Solomon. So just rolling out the glory in the display. Remember how King Xerxes, uh, king of the Persian Empire, the emperor of Persia, put on display the glories of his kingdom for 180 days, Esther chapter 1 and culminating in a seven-day feast um, described there in Esther 1. Nebuchadnezzar makes this incredible statement, as we saw last week. He's walking on the roof, uh, the, palace of his, uh, the roof of his palace, and he has a good view, I'm sure, of the city of Babylon, which was made much more glorious because of his talents, his military prowess, his architectural skill. The guy was an amazing, intelligent man. And he's full of himself, remember that moment, just so filled with pride. And says this, is this not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now here's the thing, if you look at those words, I want, I want you to see how inappropriate it is for any human being to talk like that. And how perfectly appropriate it is for Jesus to talk like that. It's absolutely right for him to say to us in the New Jerusalem, is this not the New Jerusalem I have built by my power and for the display of my glory? And the answer we'll all give is yes, it is. And we are going to see the glory of God, the glory of Christ in the New Jerusalem. Um, interesting, in Habakkuk chapter 2, there's a direct competition between Babylon, really uh, representing all human empires, and the kingdom of God. You know, as it says amazingly, has not the Lord determined that people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing, building their empires? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The direct competition. And God's going to win, eternally win. So he's going to put this on display. Um, we saw all this last time. Uh, the New Jerusalem will be radiant with the glory of God. Everything there in the New Jerusalem is set up to radiate with the glory of God. And God's greatest glory, the, the most glorious thing God has ever done, has ever made, will be in the, the redeemed, the church of Jesus Christ. It's the pinnacle of his prowess, is to take human beings who he crafts, 
redeemed them out of wickedness and service to Satan and sin and evil, transformed them and make them radiant and glorious with his own glory and put them on display. Nothing is more difficult than that and nothing more glorious of all the things God's done. And he wants to put it on display. And so we're going to spend eternity not only being glorious ourselves, but seeing other people's glory and giving God the glory. Because we'll know if there's any radiance or glory in us, it was because God worked in us. We'll know that very, very well. That's part of the book is the fact that we'll have a memory of where we came from and what God did to get us there and how much glory he deserves. Um, So this is the book thesis. A great part of the glory of God in heaven will consist in looking backward in God revealing his mighty acts of redemptive history by which he redeemed a countless multitude from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The revelation of history will be for the amazement and joy of his redeemed and for the praise of his glory. So that's what the book's about. That's what our Sunday school class is about. Sorry, Bible for Life. I'll never get it. I keep calling it Sunday school, but don't quote me on that. All right, we also saw in Colossians chapter 3 how valuable, how essential it is to meditate on the future life. It's not like some Christian guilty pleasure here. I try not to do it too much, but I can't help myself. Actually, all of us do it too little. We think about heaven too little. And we need to meditate on it again and again. It says in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts on things to come, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Cast in the future, cast in the heavenly realms. So these, these are things that we can only see by faith. We can only see the present heavenly realm with Jesus seated at the right hand of God by faith. And we can only see the future by faith. And so by faith, we should set our minds and our hearts on that. Think about it every day. Think about your heavenly life every day. And what we're going to see in this study, not just today, but throughout the time we have together, is that God's actually given us a lot of biblical evidence of what we're going to be seeing in the future. There's, it's, not, it's not a scanty amount. If you know what to look for, there's much. I mean, just whenever you see the word forever in the Bible, just you should perk up and say, hmm, maybe that has something to do with heaven. And so God is putting himself on display. So we should meditate. Now, for me, my methodology is to take from Scripture, to come up out of Scripture. I'm not looking to kind of fantasize on heaven. You know, we're not talking about Valhalla here, all right? We're not talking about Elysium or the happy hunting grounds or any of that other bizarre. American suburbia has its own weird visions of heaven that are not scriptural. I don't know, for some people, it's eternal golf. Uh, I don't don't know. I mean, you hear the strangest things at funerals. It's like, where does that come from? You know, I know it would be unseemly for me to raise my hand and say, "Just just a minute, if you could just pause and just, where'd you get that idea, all right? Um, but it would be unseemly you don't do that. But for me, it's like I want to go to the Scripture and take everything up out of Scripture, everything that we can find about our future heavenly life, and work on it. But what I've found is it's not just straight biblical texts that we're looking at, but we have to compare Scripture with Scripture and put some things together. There are doctrines that we have to put together, like we looked at the Westminster Confession of Faith, and that effectively Scripture is everything that's written in the Bible plus things that can be rightly, logically deduced from it. That's the work of theology. It's the work of teaching. It's the work of rightly dividing the word of truth. And so if, like, if this is true, then this is true. You put it together, and then things start to, to, start to flow. So we'll see all that, and we're especially going to see that this morning as I'm going to try to support all of this biblically. It's like, all right, give me some verses that show that in heaven we'll remember the past. And, and that's what we'll do today. Uh, and you'll find that there's actually more than you thought there were. There's actually many of them. So 
you know, where I might speculate, I'm going to try to avoid that too much to go too far beyond Scripture. It's not helpful. Um, but I want to, to go as far as I can. And, and if in heaven I find that I went too far, then I'll, well, I'll have repented already on, you know, Judgment Day. I'll be done with all the repenting. Um, but we'll find out. And, you know, as I was saying to a brother this morning, you know, seeing through a glass darkly is hard to do. I, I'm looking forward to seeing face to face. And then we'll see the glory. All right, so the primary sense that we should get of heaven is it's the display of God's glory. It's all about the glory of God. Now, we need to understand what that means, even apart from the study in heaven. The glory of God should be the central motivation for everything that we do. Everything we do is for the glory of God. But this is one of those slogans. What does that even mean? What does it mean to do something for the glory of God? So let me just pause and ask you, what does that phrase mean to you? I'm doing such and such, or we should do all, do all things for the glory of God, okay? So there's a massiveness. The Hebrew word for glory, kavod, um, is related, related to weightiness or massiveness. All right, any, anyone else? Uh, we should do all things for the glory of God. I love it, absolutely, for the sake of his name. Here's a verse that helps me understand glory. It says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. So what that means is that there's a light, a radiance. Glory frequently is tied to light. For example, the night that Jesus was born, an angel of the Lord showed up to the uh, shepherds and the glory of the Lord shone around, remember? And so it became bright like daytime. So glory is frequently tied to light. We definitely see that in Revelation 21, 22, where the whole city is irradiated with the glory of God. But there's also a glory that's not so much tied to light, but is more conceptual and spiritual. For example, Jesus says concerning his own imminent death on the cross in John 17, Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. So the next day there was clear display of the glory of God in Jesus dying on the cross. But there was no radiant light, quite the opposite. It was a dark day, supernaturally dark. But still, a radiant display of, and this is the word, attributes of God, descriptions of God. What kind of God is he? What kind of God would slaughter his own son so sinners like us could go to heaven? What kind of God would remove the sin of all of the, those that would someday be redeemed in a single day? What, what kind of God loves so much to put his love on display, that God demonstrates his own love for us while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So, by the way, demonstration language, God in Romans 3 demonstrates his justice at the cross. Romans 5 demonstrates his love at the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, he demonstrates his wisdom and power at the cross. Those are four attributes directly ascribed to the cross. All right, so it's, <clears throat> it's all about display, display, display. So you put it together, the radiant, that's the light aspect, display of the, of the attributes of God. God put on display. That's what heaven's all about. Forever answering the question, what kind of God is he? What is he like? And when you look at the reputation, reputation's inevitably tied to, to achievements, almost like resume. What's Christ's resume? Well, let me tell you. All right, let me tell you of his miracles. Let me tell you of his perfect sinless life and of his incredible teachings, and especially his death on the cross. And let me tell you about his mighty resurrection on the third day. That's his resume. And on the basis of that resume, we have faith. Apart from that resume, apart from the deeds done, our faith has no basis. 
So you can't call him one you've not believed in. You can't believe in someone you've never heard of. And when you hear about him, it's like, well, tell me about him. What did he do? Who is he? So that's the resume of God, the name of God. Name, name, reputation is always about achievements, like your CV, your resume, et cetera. What's God's CV? Well, we got eternity to figure that out. So um, that's the glory of God. And so the, the children of God were created for his glory. Now, we talked about this last time. Uh, there's going to be three kind of time orientations, I believe, uh, to the glory of God in heaven. Uh, the easiest to understand when we're in heaven is the present glory, just what the place will be like, right? Just seeing it. It's just going to be amazing, described in Revelation 21, 22, especially. The new Jerusalem with its transparent gold and all of the, you know, the pearly gates, all of that come, does come from the Bible. The gates are a single pearl. Um, and you have, you know, the, the foundation stones and you have the, the names over the, each of the 12 gates and you have all of the symbolic language that it's safest, I think, to take literally as well as symbolically. It's better not to sever the tie to literal and just say, okay, as far as we know, that's what it'll be like and we'll understand it, uh, this radiant glory. So there's that present glory and best of all, nothing better than this is what's called the beatific vision, seeing God face to face, actually seeing God. We're going to talk about this morning how, if I ever get out of this review, uh, but anyway, um, it, 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 we'll, we'll talk about how we will survive seeing the face of God, which Moses couldn't. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but that's the greatest glory there is, is directly from God, from his radiant, shining beauty, the source of all beauty. We will be around the throne worshiping him. Uh, so that's present. Future glory, don't know that much about it, just means the development of things in heaven and new heaven, new, new earth, new Jerusalem, just things we'll do. I just feel like we will have energetic, powerful bodies, perfect minds, perfect hearts, and stuff to do. I just don't know what it'll be. So we can set that aside. There's indications of, of activities and order and all that in heaven, but that's not what my book's about. My book is about past, the past glory, and what God did in the past to get us there. So that's what we're talking about here. All right. Now, foundational to this is a concept that I call a dynamic heaven. Uh, Randy Alcorn does a great job writing about this in his book, Heaven. And what I mean by that is you yourselves will continue to change. That perfection is not static. All right. It's dynamic. And that, that's not how I've spent most of my Christian life thinking about heaven. I thought, you know, you get glorified, boom, you're perfect, done. We're all like perfect and not moving. All right. But one concept, a theological concept, kind of blew that up. And that is, we will not ever be God. And therefore, we will not ever be omniscient. And because we will not be God and not omniscient, then it will forever be possible to learn things. And I think that we will. There will be new aspects of God's glory that we can take in that we had not seen before. That makes heaven an exciting place. Heaven a place of learning. And in that, then God's glory keeps increasing as you keep having amazing aha moments in heaven, as you meet new people, and you'll be meeting new people in heaven, lots of them, and as you meet the redeemed and find out who they were and what their story is and what God did to save them and all that, how many aha moments are waiting for you? It's like, wow, what an incredible thing that God did that in your life. And then they say, tell me your story, and then it goes like that. So dynamic heaven. So let's uh, talk about history now, learning history in heaven. What is it? How do we understand it? First of all, I've made this assertion before. There is no religion on earth for which heaven, uh, sorry, history is so important as Christianity. We are a historical religion. 
most of the Old Testament is about history or ruminating on history. It's most of the Old Testament spends its time looking backward, you know. Uh, think about the kings and chronicles and, and this summary statement. As for the rest of the deeds of his reign, are they not written in the book of the kings of the, you know, chronicles of the kings, blah, blah, blah. So this is a historical thing. When you just open up the Bible in the Old Testament, you're going to be dealing with uh, history more, more often than not. So the Jews spend a lot of time looking backward. They spend a lot of time writing about history. There's uh, that aspect. Also, we know in the New Testament, our entire faith is based on history. It's based on whether Jesus actually died on the cross and rose again. And it says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, we have no religion. There is no Christianity if Christ has not been raised from the dead. So it matters whether it actually happened or not. It's, you know, liberal Christianity, so it doesn't really matter. What matters is how it makes you feel and how it affects your life. Well, Paul says, rubbish to that, if Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins and we have no hope. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits. And so we spend our entire lives looking back at the events of the New Testament, don't we? We spend our entire lives looking back at Christ, his perfect life. I'm going to preach about his interaction with the Canaanite woman today. We're going to celebrate and delight in what he did in that interaction, try to understand it. We spend so much time looking backwards. So Christianity is dependent on history. Uh, not so, and I can go through the other world religions and just, I'm going to tell you, Buddhism, Hinduism doesn't care at all about history. I'm trying to escape almost to some degree, the realities. But Christianity is not escaping. Christianity is trying to redeem this world. Cares very much about the display of wickedness and evil, etc. So no religion in the world so dependent. However, human history is terribly limited. There are flaws and problems all over the place with human history. All right. First of all, keep it simple. In John 20 and 21, the Apostle John says concerning his own gospel, almost like, by the way, Jesus did a lot of other things that I didn't write about just so you know. As a matter of fact, if I tried to write everything down, even the whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written. So that, that kind of expansive language just triggers me on this topic. It's like, all right, then let's have the whole world and the whole universe to learn what Jesus has done. Like, I'm not going to say this in the sermon today, but I'll give it to you guys. I want to know what happened to the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, when she got home to her healed daughter. Wouldn't you just love to watch that reunion, the tears, the hugs? And then find out what happened in that region afterwards, what stories she told. Because we know in the book of Acts, Paul's there and there's this whole church in the Tyre and Sidon area. And would not at all shock me that the mother and daughter are part of that church. Just the rest of her story, that's all I'm interested, aren't you? See, now you are. You hadn't thought about it before. It's like, <laughs> I want to know the rest of the story. The whole world couldn't contain all the books that would be written. John chapter 9, the man born blind, that's a whole chapter devoted to one healing. Jesus did a river of healings. Huge populations from these big cities in that region went to Jesus and he healed them all. Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. He heals them all. They don't get their stories written. We don't know about any of them. I want to find out. So John says, look, it's limited. John 20 and 21, the whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written. All right, secondly, many peoples have no written history at all. They're not really a historical people. Or it's by word of mouth, that kind of thing, oral histories, and they become extinct or they morph into myths. Different things happen. There's just problems with that. Also, there are hidden moments known only to God. There are just some things that happen that no one even knew about. And God did them, and he, and he put some pieces in place, and you know, they were never recorded. Also, human histories are biased. They go through the filter of corrupt brains, corrupt 
hearts. Winston Churchill said this, history is written by the victors. Adolf Hitler had a darker uh, side to it, said the victor will never be asked if he told the truth. All right, what a liar he was. He like triggers some weird thing on the, on the Polish border where you know, he puts some uniforms on some German prisoners and then you know, trumps up something to start World War II. Well, what a liar. All right, but he's, he's you know, always the guise of righteousness and we're the aggrieved party and all that sort of stuff, but that was the way he's a liar. And so history is written by people like that sometimes. Not always, I'm just saying there's that angle. Um, there's also something called the fog of war, like a big event like Battle of Gettysburg or the Battle of Waterloo. Nobody knows what happened. You know what happened right in front of you, and you can tell your eyewitness account as best you remember, because you're like, your adrenaline's maxed out, and you're, you're just amazed that you even survived, as like five people got killed to your left and right. So what's your story? Well, I was, you know, here and well tell me what happened all right so historians get lots of eyewitness accounts and try to put it together but it's just this fog that's going on and no one really knows for sure and they can study for a hundred years and the further out you get the less certain it is etc that's just the way it is with history also humanity has systematically destroyed its history ask the vikings they didn't care about scrolls all right so they're just going to burn them up there it goes um same thing with natural disasters natural disasters destroy artifacts they destroy Museums, I think it happened in Latin America, maybe Brazil, there's this massive archaeological museum that got destroyed by a natural disaster, gone, all of that. Also, history is exceedingly complex. You could write a multi-volume you know, history of a single day. Now, no one would read it, all right? But I'm saying you could write it. Choose a random date, you know, June 20th, 1920. You know, not one of the more famous whatever, but it says in 2 Peter 3, with the Lord, a single day is like a thousand years. That's how busy God is. That's how much he sees what's going on. All the things he's doing, amazing. And especially most of God's people for 2,000 years haven't had the time or leisure to study anything about history. They're just trying to survive. They hear the gospel. They believe. They come to faith. They go to their jobs. They support their families. They raise their kids. They read the Bible. They hear some sermons. If it's a good church, they hear some good sermons. They know about biblical history, some. Um, maybe even all, maybe they're, they're avid Bible students and they're, they know Bible history very well, but they don't know any other history. They haven't had the leisure or the access to that. They don't know anything and they die. And so what that means is the overwhelming majority of God's people have known very little about the overwhelming majority of God's works. They don't know. They die not knowing. And I just don't think God's going to let anything be wasted. It's like, boy, have you got some surprise to see the great things I've done over history. All right, now let's talk about our resurrection bodies and our perfected heavenly capabilities. Right now, in heaven, there are disembodied spirits. Uh, there's another verse that says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We bury the body, it goes to corruption. The spirit goes to God if the person's been redeemed. And Hebrews 12, 23 says that they are the spirits, spirits of righteous people made perfect. All right, so they are perfected spirits, but they don't have resurrection bodies yet. All right, so that is already in place for them, but just let's go ahead to beyond the resurrection into the eternal state, because that's what we're studying. Uh, in the eternal state, you have perfected minds, perfected hearts, perfected bodies. Now let's talk about why that's going to be necessary. Because let me tell you, I love history, but not everyone does. And I have sat through some boring history lessons. 
I'm telling you, I, I took a, hi, a history of China class at MIT. The worst professor I had at MIT. The guy was a complete snooze. I think the topic could have been fascinating, but it wasn't. <laughs> and he used to walk back and forth in this kind of slow pendular motion and talk in a monotone. It was a two and a half hour lecture. I was like, oh my goodness. I'll never forget, I pulled three all-nighters to write a, the term paper for him. He would not accept the term paper till the end of his final lecture. There was a box, but it was covered. So we had to get through that last two plus hours of him monotone lecture, and I hadn't sleep, slept in three days. And the only seat left was right in the front. That was rough. Um, <laughs> that was a hard time. Um, but some of you may have, it's like, are you, are you serious right here? We're gonna spend eternity in a history classroom? Well, I don't see it that way. I'll talk more about the mode of delivery. It's not going to be boring, but I'm just going to say you're going to get an upgrade. You need it, and you're going to get it. All right, so what does that mean? Perfect minds, able to remember. You won't forget things. You're, you're going to be able to track, able to focus. Napoleon said genius is the ability to focus for a long time on a single thing. Well, you'll all be geniuses. You'll all be able to focus and track for a long time on a single thing and get it. You'll be able to understand the significance of what happened. Your attention span, which is being systematically destroyed by your smartphone, okay, um, will be restored and renewed. And you'll be able to track for a long time and focus and be able to take in. You'll also have perfect hearts. We're going to talk in a minute about... Uh, Jonathan Edwards' book, Heaven is a World of Love, but you will be perfected in love. You will love God and love other people perfectly, and that will be key to learning their stories. It will matter to you what God did in their lives. It will, be, it will matter to you how God was glorified vertically to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it will matter to you horizontally what he did with your neighbor. Um, and so you will be able to also evaluate. Not everything's equally glorious. Some things are just more glorious than others, so you'll be able to have the proper sense of proportion. This is big, really big. This brother or sister in Christ is, is an amazing hero or heroine. Others, not so glorious. It's just the way it is. Not everybody lives the e equally heroic, glorious lives, but everybody will be glorious, just not equally glorious. And so you'll be able to up proportionately place everything, just... Uh, that's what will be going on in your heart and your bodies. You will never get tired. Never get tired. You, you know, the body is so in weakness, it's raised in power. And so there's just mental strength. You know, if you have something like, like you take, the kids take the SAT or the ACT, and they get done, they're exhausted. I'm tired after preaching. It's not very physical, but it's mentally draining. Um, and so, whatever, there's, there's none of, just continued renewed strength so that you're like, oh, you could, you could do 20 more hours of this. So that's the, the transformation. Now, I have some verses here called Circuit Breaker. Basically, what that means is if God were to put up to 100% a display of his glory, you would die, literally die. You cannot see his face and live. God said that to Moses in Exodus 33. No one can see my face and live. But in heaven, we will see his face. And that will be living. That will, that will be eternal life, to know him perfectly. And so we will be able to handle that level of current. You know, circuit breakers, too much current, pops over. It's getting, the wire's getting hot. We can't take it all in. But in heaven, you'll have increased capacity. That's why it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't go as you are into heaven. You can't handle it. You couldn't survive it. 
and so therefore you have to be transformed, and you will be. You look at Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has an encounter with an angel, um, and this angel, this glorious angel, is so over, overwhelming for Daniel that he is literally knocked to the ground and he can't breathe. And he needs to be strengthened just to have the conversation with the angel. By the way, keep that in mind today when I preach on the demon, okay? And how effortless, effortlessly Jesus drives out the demon. You just see the infinite power of, of, of Jesus. See, angel, demons are fallen angels. And so here's this angelic being who's sent to, uh, to bring Daniel a prophecy of the future of Israel in Daniel 11. And Daniel can't handle the interaction. Well, I mean, that angel's covering his face before Christ in heaven. You see what I'm saying? You can't handle seeing Jesus. He's too glorious. And so we have to be transformed and, and made stronger. We have to be strengthened. Um, this is a very powerful uh, insight. Like in Ephesians 3, you have to be strengthened in the inner man, in the inner person, to know and grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. It's like the Brinks truck being backed up and dumping, or a hundred Brinks truck dumping up, you know, gold bricks in your living room. You're, the structure can't handle it. You will collapse. And so he has infinite glory to pour into you in heaven. So you have to be strengthened for that delivery. Does that make sense? So you're going to be strengthened in your resurrection self, in your resurrection being, so that you're able to take the download. Beyond that is, uh, and this is even more important, radical Christ-centeredness. You'll be done with you in one sense. You know what I'm saying? It's like, well, how does this make me look? You'll be free, <laughs> free from that question. I'm not saying you'll be free from being aware that you are glorious. You will be aware that you are glorious, but you know why you're glorious. You're glorious because God made you glorious. And you won't, you'll be free from that thing that's plagued us from infancy, which is fanatical commitment to self. I mean, absolute, I mean, it's with you every moment this fanatical commitment to self. To be delivered from that is one of the greatest gifts of our salvation ever. To be set free. John Piper uses the illustration of going to the Grand Canyon and looking at your own face in the mirror while the whole time you're there. It's like, what is wrong with you? All right. <laughs> but it's like, aren't I something? It's like, throw the mirror into the trash and look at this glory. And, but it's just you know, bizarre, twisted pride. And we'll be set free. We'll be radically Christ-centered. We will be all about Him. And what does this say? So this is the whole thing. I believe horizontally we'll be able to honor each other and esteem each other and, and praise in a, at a certain level each other, like we do now. We encourage, we, you know, whatever, but not worship. And at every moment, no, it's because of God. It's because of God. It's all about God. He's never forgotten like the idolaters do. It, we see the glory and give him the credit immediately. But there is that horizontal aspect. So we'll be able to do that. Um, Piper says this, God's love is not shown so much in making much of you. But it's shown in freeing you from yourself in order that you may make much of him. Won't that be freedom? Free at last from wondering and worrying about how this makes you look. Instead, it's all about how this puts God's glory on display. So drinking in the infinite greatness of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, one of the best things I've ever read about heaven was written by Jonathan Edwards. He had, I forget the number, maybe 15 sermons on 1 Corinthians 13. Amazing. 
and they're bound together in a volume. You can get it at Banner of Truth, published it called Charity and Its Fruits. So it's just a verse-by-verse exposition through 1 Corinthians 13. But you know, at the end of that chapter, Paul talks about heaven. Now we see through a glass darkly, then, then face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So love is eternal. And frankly, of that three, faith, hope, and love, only love will be in heaven. You don't need hope in heaven. Paul says in Romans 8, who hopes for what he already has. So you will not be hoping for heaven. You've got it. And you don't need faith because faith is the eyesight of the invisible. You'll see it. So there's no need for faith. Faith is temporary. Hope is temporary. Very needed now. I preach for faith and I preach for hope now. But then you don't need them but you'll have love. And so Edward saw this and said, heaven is a world of love. And so the love aspect is there. And he, he writes so amazingly. Let me just read some of what he writes. There is undoubtedly an inconceivably pure, sweet, and fervent love between the saints and glory. And that love is in proportion to the perfection and amiableness of the objects beloved. And therefore, it must necessarily cause delight in them when they see that the happiness and glory of others are in proportion to their amiableness and so in proportion to their love to them. Now, he's not easy to read, but let me tell you one of the concepts that you get across when you read Edwards on Heaven. Not everyone's equally glorious, but everyone's perfectly glorious. And it just makes sense. Not everybody lives equally glorious lives. And our esteem of, our, of the saints, brothers and sisters, will be in proportion to their, the display of glory, some greater, some less. And we will be totally fine with that. See what I'm saying? We will not be jealous of those more glorious than us. We will not be arrogant toward those less glorious than us. Everyone will have its place in the constellation of God's glory. And so to be set free from that, it, and here's the beauty of this whole study. Let me just go ahead to the application of this whole thing. The more you meditate on this, the more free you are of these things right now. You just don't worry anymore about other people getting more honor or doing more for Jesus or any of that. You just want to do as much for Christ as you can. And you actually like to take that brother or sister and encourage them all the more. I want you to be even richer. Whatever I can do to pray for your ministry or whatever, I'm not prideful about that. I, I, I live... And I'm saying this to you as a pastor. I live to make you guys as rich as possible on Judgment Day. I'm not worried that some of you will be, more, will be richer than I am on Judgment Day. That doesn't bother me at all. I want to do everything I can to make you individually as rich as you can in good works on Judgment Day. Because we're not in competition with each other. We're all part of the same body. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 12, when one part of the body is honored, the whole body is honored with it. Isn't that amazing? So how much does that set you free from petty jealousy? And I'll tell you what, it's sad, but in church history, there's been lots of petty jealousy from one person serving Christ toward another person serving Christ. It's sad. It goes on today. To be set free from that is a beautiful thing. Let me keep reading Edwards. Those that are higher, highest in glory are those that are highest in holiness, and therefore are those that are most beloved by all the saints. For they most love those that are most holy, and so they will rejoice in, all their, in their being the most happy. And it will not be a grief to any of the saints to see those that are higher than themselves in holiness and likeness to God more loved also than themselves. For listen to this, all shall have as much love as they desire. So that's explosive. The more you meditate on that, that's what gives me the sense, then do whatever you can now so you'll have more in heaven. The more faithfully you serve now, the more you put sin to death, the more you venture out in serving others in evangelism and mission, the more experience of God's love and glory you'll have in heaven. 
So I preached a sermon on this. How much heaven do you want? Go for it. It makes every moment exciting. But each one in heaven will have as much heaven as they desire. The measure you use is the measure you receive. How generous were you, you on earth? That's how generous God will be to you in heaven. And so that's what Edward says. All shall have as much of love as they desire and as great manifestations of love as they can bear. And so all shall be fully satisfied. And where there is perfect satisfaction, there can be no reason for envy. So all this came from Edwards. It's really strong. You could read it probably in about an hour and a half. While you do spend an hour and a half reading, keep in mind that was a sermon preached from a pulpit in a local church on a Sunday morning. So if I should happen to go over 40 minutes this morning or something like that, don't begrudge it, all right? 1 Corinthians 15, 41 says, There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. Listen to this. For star differs from star in glory. Wow. It's right there in the Bible. It's not just Jonathan Edwards. Not every star is equally glorious. Not everyone is equally glorious in heaven or equally honored in heaven. Every saint in heaven will be fully satisfied in God, but not equally satisfied in God. Some vessels will have larger diameter in heaven. This is me. This is my summary of Edward's thoughts. Uh, but all vessels will be submerged in the infinite ocean of God's glory. So that's, that's, what we, that's the upgrade or the upfit we're going to have. Um, proportional reactions of various levels. We already covered that. Other people's rewards. We covered that. All right. Now. This was what was promised, and we don't have enough time to finish, but I'll do the best I can. Talk really fast. <laughs> Scriptural evidence that we will remember this age for eternity. So now, like, I'm going to show you my cards, all right? How do I know this is even going to happen? By the way, uh, this morning, right before I came up here, Ron Halbrick showed me Isaiah 65, 17. Because um, I want to read that. Somebody look that up, Isaiah 65, 17. He's like, oh, this is for your book. It's like, oh, yeah, all right. So just, just read it. Somebody, Isaiah 65, 17. Thank you, Ron. <laughs> so much for my book. <laughs> Blew that up, didn't he? So the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Well, I want you to know, I did write a commentary in the book of Isaiah. I'm not unaware of that verse. All right. So I said, I understand that. This is the way I understand. First of all, let's acknowledge that cannot be an absolute statement of amnesia because then we would not remember Christ or his death on the cross. And that cannot be. So let's just start there. We will remember that Jesus died for us in heaven. Everyone nod, please. All right, there we go. All right, that's an easy one. We will remember that past anyway. What does it mean then? What it means is, it's, Isaiah does this a lot. The new things will be so awesome you won't think of the old things. That's, he uses that language. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert. He does this a lot. The former things will not be remembered. He actually says that about the Exodus. There'll come a day when people will not say, as the Lord who brought Egypt, uh, Israel out of Egypt, they'll say, as the Lord who restored the tribes, you know, they're going to say both. I'm not questioning scripture. I'm just saying it's a way of talking. It's a way of comparing. He, he's saying the, the new thing is so great that the old thing won't be remembered. That's all I'm saying. Do we remember the Exodus? Yes. Is the Exodus Jesus worked of us spiritually out of bondage to sin greater than the Exodus Moses worked out of physical bondage? It is. But we remember both. We, can, we are expanded enough to handle both. But it's just comparison language. Does that make sense? So thank you, Ron. I appreciate that verse. And uh, uh, we, we have to think. All right, so let's talk about it. First of all, the more I teach on this to a point, 
the more people tend to recoil because they hadn't thought about it. I, I think most people basically think that they will remember aspects of their earthly lives because it's just too weird to think any other way. So they do think about that. But when, they, when I start coloring it in and it goes from like a charcoal pencil sketch to like an HDTV movie, they're like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm not sure I'm up for that. Now, why would people say, are we actually going to remember everything in heaven? Are we going to actually think about everything in heaven? Why would people like initially think that's not a great thing? Huh? Embarrassment about what? Just things that might, there might be, there might be some things that would be embarrassing. Just saying, theoretically. All right. Yes. All right. So three, and I mentioned this last week, but there are three categories of things that, you know, I'll, I'll tell you why you're recoiling. Maybe you hadn't thought about it, but I have thought about it. And I think the thing, your own sins, your sins and the attendant shame, your sufferings and the attendant pain and the damned loved ones who are forever, and it's confirmed, they're in hell. It's done. Will we remember? Will we remember? Will we remember? And I say yes, yes, and yes. I can't see the tapestry unwoven with certain threads and still holding together. I don't know how we tell the Apostle Paul's story without talking about his conversion on the road to Damascus. And I don't think it's that awesome if we don't know just who Saul of Tarsus really was. And you're like, well, I don't care how Paul feels. I'm glad to tell that story. Well, Paul cares how Paul feels. <laughs> so it's like, I hope Paul's story is told in heaven. I just don't want my story told in heaven. You see, that's not consistent, all right? So the stories are going to be told in heaven. And let me just tell you, it's not in here, but I'm saying there's a Bible verse. Jesus said, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Just swim in that for a while. And one of the applications here is if you don't want to think about something you did for all eternity, then don't do it. Paul says that, I believe that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked, so I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Do you see the holiness motivation here? If you realize there is nothing concealed, then don't do concealed things. All right? Do holy things. It's a motivator. But you're like, too late, Pastor. All right? Too late. <laughs> I already did some. Well, the Lord knows that. He, that's why Jesus came. So here's my basic concept. Somebody read for probably the 10th time, and the, there'll be 20 more times. Revelation 21.4. Okay. So, Dave, what does that say to you concerning the three painful topics? Our sin, our sufferings, and the damned. Okay. How will we feel about those topics in heaven? Well, one thing we know won't be happening in us. We will not be crying about it. And we'll not feel any pain over it. No pain. I consider shame a painful feeling. So even though shame's not listed there, I think that's gone. No shame, no pain, just memory. Craig, were you going to say something, brother? Absolutely. What, whatever teaching I can do here in this context or in the pulpit that helps you not sin in the future is a good thing. So that's part of my the internal journey of holiness. That's part of my calling is to help you fight sin. So if this concept, and it should, helps you fight new sins that you haven't done yet, praise God. The old sins we have learned are covered, completely covered in the blood of Christ. Now, I'm going to talk about the covering language and the I will remember them no more language. I understand that's in the Bible. All right, there are other forgetting verses, and we have to weave this together into a robust doctrine of this heavenly memories. It's not a simple thing. All right, but one thing I just hold to again and again, just memory and no pain. Memory and no shame, just memory. For me, no memory cannot be 
It's just too weird. And people just haven't thought it through. You don't want that. That's not heaven. That's weird. And when I say that's weird, it means that all human beings have been stripped of their past, stripped of their name, stripped of their identity. Who are they then? I don't know who they are. Bunch, they're a bunch of props to a point. I would say there is a purpose in present pain over past sins while we are still in danger. It's been forgiven, but I'm going to keep remembering the pain of it, and so we should. Doesn't the Lord discipline those that he loves? And isn't discipline painful? It's told in, in Hebrews, no discipline is pleasant but painful. Are you supposed to remember the Lord's discipline for your sins now? Should you remember that God disciplined you for that sin? Yes. Do you want your children to remember the disciplines? Yeah, you want them to remember. All right? Uh, but I'm saying now is different than then. And then we won't be in danger. So there's no need for pain. Now we need to know that when you touch the stove, you get burned because you got burned in the past. And we're supposed to remember and hate the sin. So it's a, there are different rules now. But yeah, Brenda, I would say absolutely you can remember and still know you're forgiven and feel that forgiveness. Right, there are extremes on both sides. All right, and we want to avoid this, uh, the extremes. We want to be in that healthy middle place where we remember our sins, feel the regret for them, feel the sting for them, but not overwhelmed, know that we're forgiven, we've learned the lesson so we don't do that again, right? And then you move on with your life. I'm just saying in heaven the rules are different. So, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna spend a whole bunch of time on that later, not today. But, yeah, the lost loved ones, again, we're going to see everything through the lens of the glory of God. And you're going to see it like God does. It's not easy. Believe me, I understand. Those are hard topics. But, again, I just can't think that those people will be annihilated from our memories. You know the doctrine of annihilation? It's the, the, the damned aren't in hell. They're annihilated. They cease to exist. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. That's not biblical. Eternal conscious torment is the future of the wicked. The question is, are they conscious in our minds? And there are Bible verses that teach that, that, are, that they are. They don't, we don't, they don't get wiped out of our memories. Because first of all, again, the tapestry falls apart. Who, who was this wicked person? That We don't know. They're gone. They're, they've been wiped out. So how do you tell the story? How do we tell the story? So it's going to be told, but just no pain. All right, let's move on. I haven't given actually any biblical evidences yet. Um, <clears throat> Hebrews 8.12, For I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Again, keep in mind, a single thought, Namely, omniscience is the key to this, right? Because we will never be omniscient, I said earlier, we will always be able to learn. Because God will forever be omniscient. Does he forget anything? No. Then what does he mean when he says, I'll remember their wickedness and their sins no more? It's provisional language. It's relational language. My facial expression, my demeanor is no different toward you than had you never sinned. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that I forgot that you owed 10,000 talents. Remember the parable? The king forgave the 10,000 talents. Did he remember that he forgot, forgave the 10,000 talents? Oh, you better believe he remembered. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to, he said. Remember that? He remembers exactly what was canceled. So does God. But what he's saying is he doesn't bring it up. It's not going to hinder you relationally. He delights in you like the father of the prodigal son. He hugs you, welcomes you back, sits at table with you, feasts with you, enjoys you. So it's a provisional forgetfulness. It's not a reduction of God's omniscience. So he forgets and he doesn't forget. That's all I'm saying. So you guys can get, just, but I tell you what, this topic gets the wheels turning. It really does. But more you think about it, it's like, all right, you know, you're coming to a more robust understanding of what forgiveness really is all about. All right? Um, oh, what do you know? There it is, Isaiah 65, 17. So, 
you can go tell Ron Halbrooks. I knew about this. I'm just kidding. Uh, but no, it's a great verse. The former things will not be remembered. No, they come to mind. All right, let's talk about some scriptural evidences. My book is actually up to 17 now. All right, so we're at 10 so far. I've got to stop, though. People won't read it. All right, 37 pages on scriptural evidences. Skip, 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 or just summarize. All right, number one, the God of Abraham and the feast with, Ab- uh, with Abraham. Matthew 22, 31, 32. But about the resurrection of the dead, this is Jesus proving to the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. He's proving to them there is a resurrection. Listen how he does it. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. How does that prove resurrection? It's not easy to figure it out. The key, it has to do with the verb tense. I am. Then when you add on Abraham's name, It goes like this, I am Abraham's God, and then I'll add a few more words, I am Abraham's God right now. Abraham has a God right now, and he's me. So Abraham's enjoying his relationship with God right now. What does that tell you about Abraham? He exists, and so does Isaac, and so does Jacob. But they exist as such. They exist as Abraham, who's different than Isaac, who's different than Jacob. They're different men with different stories. They did different things. And so all I'm saying is the name Abraham, for it to mean anything, must have a trailing history, a a resume, let's put it that way, a a record of what it is that made Abraham Abraham. Also this one, someone read for us Matthew 8, 11. Okay, so picture you in your resurrection body sitting down at table in the kingdom of heaven and it's your time your turn to sit with abraham and you get to have a conversation only problem is you don't know who you are and he doesn't know who he is and you are two anonymous glorious beings radiant in white and you have name tags but you don't know what they mean and you're joe and he's abraham and you're about to eat and um said, hi, who are you? I'm Abraham. Nice to meet you. I'm Joe. Pass the potatoes or whatever it is we eat in heaven. Do you not see how weird that is? I've said before, that is weird. And if there's a multitude greater than anyone could count of these nameless, faceless, radiant, like, beings, to me that's strange. Like there's this factory, like, chunking out endless, like, radiant, dressed in white beings with zero history, zero name. That's not heaven, friends. It's Abraham, the one who took Isaac up Mount Moriah and was about to offer him as a sacrifice. That's who he is. And you get to talk to him about that. What it was like to be a pilgrim in a tent in the promised land and what experiences. How did you get to the place in your faith where you're ready to kill your own son and believe that God was going to raise him from the dead? Now, that's a, that's a conversation worth having, don't you see? So therefore, there must be a trailing track record. That's the first. Let's keep going. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. There's more. But wait, there's more. Um, God's promise to David, David. Listen to this. Remember, David wanted to build a temple, a house for God. God, through Nathan, uh, told him no. Uh, so this is the prophecy, God's prophecy through Nathan. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Stop. That's all history, isn't it? 
this is who you were, this is what I did. It's all history. Now, I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. Wow, what a statement for God to make to a human being. I'm going to make your name great. So, and I, I, I played with, um, with Daphne on this topic the other day. I was like, um, you know, isn't it awesome how Michael Jordan's the best quarterback ever and, and has set a record for all of the touchdown passes in all these Super Bowls? You're like, wait, what? No, that he was a basketball player. See, the name is tied to the achievements or it doesn't mean anything. See, name is all about what you did. And so God is saying to David, I will make your name unforgettable. We're still thinking about David and Goliath, the battle, the, the faith he showed. It's still a, a great story. And when you get your time at the feast with David, you can talk to him about that or whatever's on your mind. So what were you feeling when you wrote Psalm 23? He's the one who wrote Psalm 23. Talk to him about it. As such, David, the David of the Bible. If it gets wiped away, then what good? Why did it even happen? All right, move on. Um, it is sinful for humans to seek a great name for themselves, but it is not sinful for God to make a name great for somebody. So clearly, because God says, I'm going to make your name great, like the names of the greatest people on earth. If God does it, it's fine. For you to seek to make your own name great, bad idea. Absalom sought to build a monument for himself, so did King Saul. They both built, built statues for themselves. Bad idea. Don't do that. Don't do the Tower of Babel thing where you make some great thing for yourself. But if God decides to make your name great, that's totally fine. And he is able to do that uh, for his servants. So Jesus will be eternally remembered as the son of David. Can someone read this for Revelation 5, 5 and 6? <clears throat> All right. And then Revelation 22, 16, one of the last verses in the Bible. This is Jesus talking. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David and the bright morning star. So not only will Jesus be remembered forever, so will David. That's all I'm saying. David will be remembered forever. That's in heaven. And Jesus will be able to say, I am descended from David. I was human, born of the Virgin Mary, and David called, I was called in life son of David. Secondly, the covenant uh, promise to Abraham concerning the land. Hebrews 11 says they died not receiving the promises. It's like a big heavenly IOU. And God keeps his promises. And Hebrews says they died not having received the promises. That should be a major disconnect in your mind. It's like, wait a minute, God keeps his promises. Well, they're yet to come then, aren't they? They hadn't received them yet. So look what it says. Genesis 13, you remember the, the bickering that went on between Lot and his herdsmen and Abraham and his herdsmen? And there wasn't enough pasture to uh, uh, support them both. So Abraham and Lot separated and Lot went down to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and then had a later history, as you know well, what happened with Lot. Abraham is still there, and the Lord is with Abraham. Look what he says. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north, south, east, and west. Here's a promise. All the land that you see, I will give to you, singular, and to your offspring forever. Friends, that is a promise written with the hand of God and handed to a human being. It has not been fulfilled. Wow. He didn't get it. How do we know that? Hebrews eleven thirteen. Someone read that for us. Awesome. The verse continues. People who say such things show that they're not looking for the place they had left. If they had uh, been thinking of the place they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a heavenly country, a better country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their gods, for he has prepared a city for them. So Hebrews eleven sixteen. God has prepared a city for them and a country for them. 
So that's the new Jerusalem and the new universe, new heaven, new earth. But here's the thing. It's not what we call bait and switch. I know I promised you a Ford Fiesta. I'm sorry, I, don't, I gotta be careful. I know I, I promised you one kind of car, and instead I'm going to give you a $250,000 sports car. Okay, that's better, but it is to some degree a breach of what was promised. See what I'm saying? So this is what I think. I believe, not just in resurrected people, but in a resurrected earth. Will we, our bodies, be raised from the dead? Please tell me you're Orthodox Christians. Do you believe in the resurrection of the body from the dead? Whose body will you have? Yours, but much better. And you're like, thank God for that. You are getting your body raised from the dead. So what that means is continuity and massive difference. So it is with the earth. It's the same earth, just resurrected. So God will keep his promise from Genesis 13 to Abraham. He will keep it, but it will also be infinitely better. You see what I'm saying? It is that earth, but it's better. Just like he himself will be himself, only better. He will be in his resurrected body, the same body he walked around with, only better, resurrected, walking on the resurrected earth. And guess what? We're in there too because we're his offspring. So as Abraham's sons and daughters, we get inheritance too through him. So he's, he's the father and he, you know, that's how the patriarchal system worked back then. We get our promises by being sons and daughters of Abraham. Read about it in the book of Galatians. So fundamentally we get these things. How does that prove heavenly memories? Abraham remembers the promise. He remembers the land. He remembers what God said. He celebrates in heaven. Now God has fulfilled his promise to me. Other than that, the covenant doesn't mean anything. We can't see God's faithfulness in keeping his promises. Does that make sense? Now, this is probably my favorite verse, uh, Ephesians 2, 7. Somebody read that for Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. Believe me, I know it's 16 past, but I want to get at least Ephesians in here. Somebody read Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. If you said, Pastor, give us one verse that tells you, tells you that we'll remember in heaven what we did on earth, that's it. How is that? In the coming ages, that's in heaven, he might show how gracious he was to us in Christ. Wow. So forever, we're going to be learning the dimensions of God's grace to us, the kindness he showed us in Christ. In order, and I like the word show, all right, not just tell, but he will put on display how gracious he was and is and will be to us in Christ. So there's a combination of it's a magnitude of his grace and that you're even in this radiant place, this new Jerusalem, and, and just even to be there is incredible. But this shows that you're there by grace and mercy and kindness. So to be able to celebrate God's amazing grace in heaven, you have to remember that you were a sinner. See what I'm saying? You have to remember that there was the, a redeeming work done in your life and so that you can celebrate that. We cannot celebrate God's grace to us as sinners without remembering that we were sinners. How can we thank God for redeeming us by the blood of the Lamb without remembering that what redemption is and that our sins needed to be covered by the atonement? Look at Revelation 1 verse 5 and 6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I can't imagine that we can't say that in heaven. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We'll say it with no shame, no pain, just glory to God. 
And look at the word redeemed ascribed to those who are in heaven, Revelation 14, 3. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elder, elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who, listen, had been redeemed from the earth. The word redeemed means bought out of sin. So they're in heaven and they're learning a new song and they know that they're redeemed.